from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today we're going to delve into some history on a remarkable place called the Narcotic Farm. The Narcotic Farm that was in Lexington, Kentucky, created in the 1930s as a place to sort of simultaneously punish and treat drug addicts. Now, my guest, who is this an extraordinary academic, is Nancy Campbell. She's a professor uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is outside Albany, New York. She's been a leading drug scholar for many years. She's an historian of science and technology who's focused on legal and illegal drugs and on harm reduction. She's written two books on gender and addiction, but she's done also two books that are relevant to the subject at hand. One is a book she wrote some years ago called Discovering Addiction, about the science and politics of substance abuse research. And the other one is the book called The Narcotic Farm, The Rise and Fall of America's First Prison for Drug Addicts. So, uh, Nancy, thank you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. I'm delighted to be here, Ethan. 
Well, you know, I should also tell our audience that you and I have, you know, crossed paths a few times over the years, but our principal intersection was just a few months ago, in June of this year, when we both attended the conference of an organization called Alcohol and Drug Historians Society, ADHS, which was a place where I met all sorts of interesting people I want to have as guests on Psychoactive, and you're the first one from that conference I've invited to be on. So thank you so much for doing this with me. So let's just jump into this thing. I mean, obviously, this history about the creation of a sort of narcotic farm, a kind of cross between a prison and a treatment program that was set up in Lexington by the U.S. government in the 1930s. What brought you to be interested in this place? Well, so I wrote a dissertation in the 1990s about uh, U.S. drug policy in the 1950s. In the 1950s, there were a bunch of hearings, they were called the Daniel hearings, and they were televised and they were held in seven cities around the country. And there were a lot of witnesses who testified in these hearings. And the New York hearings, uh, New York City hearings, involved these doctors and researchers, scientists. And what struck me about them was that they were all from Lexington, Kentucky, and they all sounded a little bit like drug policy reformers sound today. They saw drug uh, users as human beings. They definitely did not think that incarceration or criminalization was the way to go. And they argued with the police and the law enforcement and the federal apparatus uh, because they thought that drug addiction should be placed under the banner of medicine and that it was a health problem. And that sounds very familiar to our ears. And so I got curious about them. I thought, you know, what did they put in the water in Lexington, Kentucky, that would lead this group of researchers and doctors and people who treated people who were drug addicts, and they called them addicts in those days, to make that argument. And that turned out to be a harder question to answer than I realized, and also easier, because they were all at the U.S. narcotic farm in Lexington, Kentucky, and they were all uh, federal employees of the public health service, the U.S. public health service, and they were there to kind of try to discover what they could about this, this disease, and they thought of it as a chronic relapsing disease. And so they were an interesting group, and I tracked them from the mid-90s um, into the early 2000s. I didn't have an opportunity to really track them down. And then in the early 2000s, I thought it's time to try to figure out what this American institution was before everything about it really disappeared. I see. Now, we should explain to our audience, you know, that when these um, institutions emerge, I mean, I will talk basically about the one in Lexington, which was the key one. Um, but there was another one in Fort Worth, which did not have a whole research program attached to it. But when we think about the emergence of these things, when Congress authorizes them in the 1930s and when they're created in the 1930s, let's set the context for this. Because I think, you know, some of the, our audience will know that you go back to the 19th century and drugs like 
morphine and cocaine were legal, legally available, widely prescribed, could be gotten over the counter, ordered by mail order. They were recommended for you know all sorts of aches and pains. And then you see in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, a kind of growing backlash, growing concerns. Uh, heroin had been invented in 1898, initially as a cough suppressant. People begin to realize it's, it's dangerous. People begin to realize the dangers of cocaine. And so you get the 1914 Harrison Narcotic Act, which begins to change the whole perspective of U.S. drug policy. So if you could take us a little bit through that history from around 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act and the Supreme Court, and how we land up in a much more punitive situation within a decade or so. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting history and relevant uh, to today's discussion. So the Harrison Act uh, was a tax act, and it was not at all clear to anyone how exactly that was going to influence the practice of medicine, which had veered away from using the opiates and overprescribing the opiates um, in the early 20th century. So heroin, for instance, in the U.S. was never indiscriminately available. It might be prescribed, but it was never really used medically. And so that uh, um, was an interesting thing. In 1914, um, the Harrison Act, uh, there weren't that many people who were that concerned, really, honestly, about uh, the problems of opiate addiction. However, once the act went into effect, there were a lot of people um, who were using medically, uh, using morphine. And that meant that there were suddenly a lot of people who were basically trying to get off morphine. And so we started in the U.S. Uh, morphine maintenance clinics. And the morphine maintenance clinics went into effect towards the end of the, of the teens, of the 1910s. There was a, a lot of backlash to these morphine maintenance clinics. And they were in cities like Shreveport, Louisiana, or Jacksonville, Florida, uh, the New York City Clinic. They were shut down. Um, in the early 1920s. So by 1921, 22, they were mainly shut down for a variety of reasons, but mainly having to do with prosecution of the Harrison Act, uh, because physicians began to be prosecuted. So that meant that physicians began to be scared. So these clinics that had popped over the years, were they actually maintenance clinics or were they more detox clinics designed to get people off? No, they were, they were maintenance clinics, but they functioned as detox clinics eventually, and they were shut down rapidly, so there was no uh, real attention to the patient at that point. And so, even the ones uh, just doing detox, even the ones saying we're going to give you declining doses to get you off morphine, even those ones start getting shut down by the authorities. Yes. So in this era, it's the Treasury Department which enforced prohibition. They enforce, you know, they're they're doing the work um, rather than the the Federal Bureau of Narcotics doesn't really start up until 1930. And so mm -hmm. you have this period of time when it's really very unclear whether physicians are going to, it, it becomes clear to physicians that they are in danger of prosecution if they continue to maintain their patients on morphine. And so they basically eradicate the practice of morphine maintenance and they switch a lot of people onto barbiturates, onto other sedatives, other drugs, and they uh, basically create a kind of criminalization that gets heightened towards the end of the 20s. And in the end of the 20s, in the late 20s, you remember 1929, everyone knows that's the year of the Great Depression. But in early 1929, 
the U.S. Congress, prior to the Great Depression beginning, they legislate the building of these narcotic farms because by that time there is overcrowding in prisons. About a third of the people who are in U.S. federal prisons are drug users. And they decide that they don't want prisons containing drug users, and they decide to essentially divert them to large federal narcotic farms. And so in the 20s and 30s, right, there is an attempt, a real attempt to find a cure. The idea is science can find a cure for drug addiction. And if we can only give our researchers, our scientists, enough support, then we will be able to cure uh, what is clearly to many a disease. And they call it a disease throughout that period. So the U.S. narcotic farm is authorized to be built by the U.S. Congress in the early, um, early in the year of 1929. So I recently came across a new book by a fellow named Ken Anderson, who I know from the world of sort of harm reduction advocacy around alcohol. But he has a new little book called From Inebriate Asylums to Narcotic Farms. And one thing he does is also place the narcotic farm approach in this tradition of inebriate asylums, of sending, you know, people who are addicted to alcohol in a severe way to these asylums for some sort of quote unquote treatment and for segregating them from the general population. And I was curious, I mean, I, I didn't see much about this in the Narcotic Farm book, but do you see this as part of the broader kind of, you know, uh, zeitgeist of what's going on and the way people are thinking about addiction? Or in fact, is the narcotic and alcohol thing so separate that you'd say that they don't really overlap in any way? No, I, I would say they do overlap. And that move from an asylum, right, the thing about the asylums was that people of all kinds were in those, right? They, they might be alcoholics. They might be people who have co-occurring mental health disorders with alcoholism or without, with drug addiction or without. And so you might have people who have no co-occurring disorders, but who are drug users also would sometimes be placed in those settings. And states, you know, did different things with them, but they definitely lumped everybody together. The narcotic farm was an attempt to separate out people whose sole problem was drug addiction, narcotic addiction. And narcotics was a catch-all term at that time that did refer to both opiates and cocaine, which is a little bit hard for us to understand because they are drugs that do very different things, have very Mm -hmm. different effects. However, it it was basically um, what became the illicit market after the Harrison Narcotic Act. And so the narcotic farms did not accept alcoholics and did not even like to accept barbiturate users, although they did, and they did study and try to figure out how to respond to barbiturate um, withdrawal because that can cause seizures and death. They were primarily made for the opioid user. And at that time, that meant heroin and that meant morphine. Now, many, many morphine users and heroin users would also use cocaine, but they did not regard it as uh, their primary drug of choice, shall we say. And Mm -hmm. so that, uh, and other drugs were also very little represented in the narcotic farm. So cannabis, for instance, um, although that was studied slightly and people did refer to it, it was not thought of as an addictive substance in anything Mm -hmm. like the same way. These were really made for opiate users. 
you know, mm-hmm. the opium problem. They're solving the opium problem. So the mm-hmm. U.S. Congress is solving the opium problem by building these uh, farms, these large, and they were, they were a thousand acres, and they were large um, buildings, large farms, sort of congregate care for people who have opium problems. And the idea was six months of essentially drying out and you'd be good. But the narcotic farms were also very, they were very interesting as institutions. And just to be clear here, you say the narcotic farms, we were basically talking about two, right? The Lexington, the most famous one that's opened up in 1935, and that has a major research part that we'll talk about later in our discussion. And then Fort Worth, Texas, which is the second one opened up a few years later. And I think it's important, you know, for our listeners to know that when Lexington's launched, it's a big deal. None of the stuff we're talking about was secret. I mean, when Lexington gets open, the Surgeon General's there. The governor of Kentucky's there. There's national media that's describing the narcotic farm as everything from, quote unquote, a new deal for the drug addict to, quote unquote, a million dollar flop house for junkies. So I interrupted you there in saying, so why was it called a farm? Yeah, so the, it, it's a it's pretty interesting. It was an actual farm. Uh, they sought for al- arable land. And so there were there were contests across the country. For uh, first of all, where would these things be cited? And remember, this is the depression, and so cities and municipalities would compete to get federal jobs. And there were also competitions for what they would be named. And this was really thought of as an alternative to prison. This was thought of as a new deal for the drug addict, and that is how it was represented in things like editorial cartoons. And so the U.S. narcotic farm, and in its early days, it was called that. But after a while, people began to realize that there's a sort of joke in that. And that is that, uh, what are they doing? Growing narcotics <laughs> I see. there, you know, poppies uh-huh. or, or marijuana or what, whatever it might be. Um, and so they uh, gradually kind of moved away from using the term farm. But the farm was already within the lore of uh, the drug-using population. And in 1935, when the farm opens, to great fanfare, I mean, this was the U.S. Congress's answer to the opium problem, is this massive, beautiful, uh, very large structure. It's still there. Today, it's just a prison. But it's jointly run, right, by both the Bureau of Prisons and the Public Health Division of the U.S. government, right? It's a joint enterprise of the two. So there's both the punishment side and there's the kind of rehab research side kind of merged together in a kind of awkward sort of way, right? Yeah. And it's awkward in many ways um, because you can volunteer to go there. You can go up to the gates of the narcotic farm and say, I'm a drug addict. I have papers from my doctor. And before World War II, most of the people who went to the narcotic farm, so a third of them are volunteering in that manner where they're just showing up, seeking treatment and getting it uh, largely for free. If they could pay, uh, they were asked to pay. But it was a place where you might go if you were a drug user and you know the snow is starting to fly in New York City and you don't really have a place to live. What we would call today a, a homeless or unhoused population 
often spent their winters at the narcotic farm. But but I mean, this so, is actually, if you think about it, quite remarkable, because here <laughs> we have a place that's a prison, yet basically a third of the inmates are people who come knocking at the door and say, let me in. I mean, there are no other prisons that I'm aware of like that, right? I and mean, actually, so, so, the, yeah. the other prisons, right, most of the people who went to Lexington had been incarcerated in prisons and jails and other places that were not devoted to uh, curing the drug addicts. And so they thought of Lexington, the narcotic farm, as a country club. And in fact, it became known very much as a country club prison. There it is in the South, but it's not racially segregated and it's not gender segregated after 1941. So it's a strange institution. It's awkward in every way. So for the entire 40 years that the narcotic farm operated, uh, 10 to 15% at any given time, this is true of men as well as women, were uh, professionals, largely physicians, largely people who had access to opiates or put their wives on them. And so you have uh, nurses and, you know, many, many professionals who had greater access to opioids became habituated to them and ended up going to the narcotic farm. Uh, So it was a bizarre institution when you really think about it, because it is so mixed. So in talking about the general population, and we're talking about, you know, they treated over 100,000 people in the time that they were operating. But you you really do see a kind of uh, change uh, in the pattern of who goes to the narcotic farm that reflects the changes in the pattern of who uses opioids. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. 
Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. You had said it was regarded as something of a country club prison. They had all sorts of recreational facilities. They had all sorts of, you know, nice ways of treating people, whether people got manicures and haircuts. There were social events, but you had gymnasiums. You had a golf course, I think. You had a tennis yeah. court. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, when, when we looked at it, uh, and I think Luke Walden and J.P. Olson and I, as we were trying to interpret these photographs, that we were seeing in the archives and that we were trying to understand, right? You see all kinds of recreational, there was a bowling alley. There are bowling alleys in the narcotic farm. There's the second largest auditorium in the entire state of Kentucky for jazz concerts. And I'm sure there was some resentment, but it really looks like uh, an American small town. You can see the mentality, right? It's kind of a city on a hill this rolling hills of Kentucky bluegrass. This is thoroughbred country, right? And uh, they are farming. Everyone is, you know, they're, they're harvesting uh, vegetables. They're cutting the hay. They raise 95% of the pork products that are consumed at that facility are raised at that facility. They have all kinds of activities and they log the amount of time that um, their patient inmates spend at recreation, right? So they, thousands of hours each year are recorded of uh, people who are bowling or playing ping pong or um, playing softball. There's a women's softball team. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's every kind of recreation that they could imagine how to fit in there. And that's because they are convinced very early on that, um, if people had better things to do with their time, they wouldn't use drugs. So the idea there is you find alternative reinforcers, activities that compel people, that make people feel part of something larger, a community, whether it's basket weaving or whether it's, um, you know, they had these outdoor concerts in the middle of the courtyard. And, you know, they really tried to make sure that people were busy all the time. They had jobs, everybody had a job. So you had to work and you had to play and you had to sleep and you had to eat. And that normalization project, and it really was, it was like, we're gonna take this institution and we're going to make an American small town and we are going to um, indicate to people how they could fit into that small town uh, you know, so it's a very interesting model, and it's one that we, to this day, right, have this idea that if we could provide alternative reinforcers, then people wouldn't use drugs, right. and they wouldn't go back to using drugs. That turned out not to work. 
it turns out that the recidivism rates are off the charts. So it seems, though, that what the narcotic farm does is it creates this place for people to chill out, gain some skills. Nobody's overdosing or dying there, right? And in fact, one of the elements I'm curious about is what was if two-thirds of the people there had been sentenced under the federal drug laws, but one-third are people who have showed up voluntarily, what was the dynamic like between the ones who were there voluntarily and the ones who were not? Yeah, there was very little differentiation between, um, we call them the vols, and many of the vols were repeat customers. Uh, In fact, they were called winders because they would wind in and wind out, and then they would wind back. The one that we found who was there the most uh, was there 44 times, and on his 45th time uh, after that, (laughs) he didn't didn't return. But uh, many people were there, maybe nine, ten. I I mean, we know to this day, right, that that um, treatment often doesn't work the first time and that people do have to try multiple modalities. And one of the things that they tried to do at the narcotic farm was they tried to provide under one roof um, multiple modalities of treatment. So they tried Mm -hmm. a lot of different things. The other thing that they really believed, in addition to the alternative reinforcers, i.e. the play uh, the recreational opportunities. Um, everyone had a job and were they were trained for these jobs. And these jobs ranged from auto mechanics to woodworking to uh, working, of course, in the cooking um, and cleanup in the kitchen. But they also um, included skills training. So for instance, photography and darkroom work or printing or um, other kinds of highly skilled activities where you really could imagine people getting jobs afterwards were uh, sewing, tailoring, uh, various kinds of things uh, of this kind. And these were, at that time, in 1930, these were progressive elements of prison reform. The Federal Bureau of Prisons came into being in 1930, and it came into um, being at a time when people were really thinking about, um, is it possible to make people who are incarcerated gain new skills or take on new responsibilities? And would that, in fact, um, you know, help them in their lives after they left these institutions? And so that vocational training, vocational skills aspect of the narcotic farm, uh, which included agricultural labor, uh, they mm-hmm. had cows. And so there are lots and lots of stories about these city boys um, <sighs> finding themselves out milking cows early in the morning and sloshing around in the manure. Right. Hard, hard to see how learning how to milk a cow is going to help you when you <laughs> exactly. go back to uh, New York City after that. But, you know, you exactly. talked also in the book about how after World War II, there's a change in the addict population. It's less about older guys. And now you have the first youth heroin epidemic and you have the children of immigrants, you know, Italian and Jewish and Irish, and you have Puerto Ricans and, and blacks. And that results in the 50s in Congress enacting really incredibly draconian laws. I mean, we sometimes think about the laws today, but in 19 19- 1956, the Narcotic Act that Congress passes after, you know, one of the more more recent drug scares back then has a five year minimum sentence for first time possession and a death penalty for dealers. So how does all this affect what's going on at the narcotic farm? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting because the hearing that uh, got me interested in the narcotic farm uh, was part of the lead up to that 1956 act. And the people at the narcotic farm opposed the uh, 1956 Act. And that was partly because there were mandatory minimum sentences that were uh, leveled initially in 1951 in the Boggs Act. 
And that was very much responsive to concerns about juvenile delinquency. These populations of largely young men, but young women as well. And I write about that in some of my other work. There was a famous study called The Road to H. H uh, was the slang term for heroin at the time. So The Road to H was uh, done at New York University. And it um, looks at this population. And what's happening is that this younger, more racialized, uh, more ethnicized population is starting to show up at the narcotic farm right around 1951. So during the World War II, um, you've probably all heard that uh, opioids were stockpiled. Uh, they were not just stockpiled at Fort Knox, although they were stockpiled there, but at stockpiles around the country for um, efforts during the war. One of the major purchasers of opioids is actually the U.S. military major users because um, codeine, cough suppression, other uh, uses of morphine. Uh, also, of course, during wartime, you need more morphine mm -hmm. to be available for people who are injured um, in, in the war. So you have Korea, you have lots of people who begin to get um, experience with the opioids, and you have, after World War II, a kind of flushing out of those stockpiles so that suddenly you find heroin in the streets again. You also have the 1940 on, you have the US-Mexico border. Um, a lot of opioids are coming into the country either, well, through, through Mexico, regardless of whether they are um, produced in Mexico or whether they're produced in, um, it, through the Asian routes, they're coming in that way. And then you also have, of course, other routes coming in from uh, to the East Coast. Uh, the Daniel hearings that led to that 1956 act were um, uh, about the border. And so you see the 1950s is a period of increasing criminalization, increasing buy-in. So even though um, many people, uh, doctors, lawyers, you know, people who had experience with uh, drug addiction, like social workers, argued against criminalization, uh, they lost. They lost mm -hmm. that fight. So in fact, in the 1950s, this is uh, back to my dissertation topic, um, there was a wonderful um, American Medical Association, American Bar Association effort called Drug Addiction, Crime or Disease. And there were a significant component of people who were saying this is a disease and it should be treated as a disease. And of course that fit very well with the narcotic farm because they had always seen it as a disease and they in fact talked about it as a chronic relapsing condition. And the, the 50s is so interesting. It's so interesting because you have a culture, a heroin using jazz culture. It, I, I, can't, I can't kind of convey how important heroin was uh, to the jazz culture. Um, in 1957, a guy named Charles Winnick in New York City interviewed 357 heroin-using jazz musicians. <laughs> so this was definite, you know, I mean, like, that that's a very specialized population. And to be able to find 357 of them for your study is kind of surprising. But in many ways, Lexington became this kind of mecca of this cultural center, really, for this population. And the 1950s was its heyday. And so across the 1950s, you begin to see a huge population shift, really, 
at the narcotic farm. So you have mu- many more. Well, Louis, let, let's just focus it on this Many jazz more. thing. Because I'll <laughs> tell you that for a long time, I mean, if if somebody mentioned the narcotic farm to me 20 years ago, the first yeah. thing that I would think of, oh, yeah, that was the federal narcotic prison where you had all the jazz, famous jazz players. And I mean, just for our listeners, if you know anything about jazz, it had Chet Baker was there, Sonny Rollins, who's still playing and is widely regarded as maybe second only to John Coltrane as the greatest of all saxophonists, had Elvin Jones, Jackie McLean, Sonny Stitt, who I used to go see in the Upper West Side years ago, Joe Guy. So, I mean, it really was an exceptional story. And then there, I think there's this incident that you mentioned in the book in 1964, where an orchestra made up of the jazz players who were at Lexington performed on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Now, unfortunately, the tapes no longer exist, but I mean, I guess it was described as the greatest band you've never heard. So, I mean, probably no other federal prison can claim that sort of uh, link with great, you know, great artists in America. Well, no other prison except perhaps Fort Worth. So the Fort Worth Narcotic Farm, they also had jazz greats and also celebrities. So that was the other thing about Lexington is that Uh there was a celebrity culture. Um, and so you might have actors, people you, you, you would know, and the whole population would get very excited about, oh, somebody's being admitted. Um, and you could also go hear those concerts. They had practice rooms. They also bought musical instruments for the patient inmates. So a lot of people who never played together outside would play together at Lexington. Um, and there were a lot of jazz fans, right? There were a lot of mm-hmm. people who went to jazz clubs who also used heroin, and who um, had this lifestyle um, that kind of became part of the place, uh, to the point where many, many people remember the music above everything else about Lexington. Mm-hmm. Well, that was certainly my case until I read your book, you know. <laughs> so what happens is from the 30s through into the 50s and early 60s, there's still the basic model, which is engage people in agricultural work and have them fresh hair and have tremendous recreational facilities and vocational training and hope that all of this stuff works out, that people won't recidivate, which turns out to be false. Although, you know, as we also know with drug addiction, that even when most of the people who volunteered to go to the narcotic farm, they weren't exactly looking to get clean, to get off drugs. They were mostly looking to kind of chill out for a while when they were burning out on the life on the streets. So it did add some value in that sense. But then there's a moment, I think, in the 60s where people begin to give up on the whole agriculture as treatment model and where the narcotic farm shifts and it begins to embrace some of these therapeutic community approaches that were happening outside. And maybe there's some things that are initially grounded in Alcoholics Anonymous, programs like Daytop and the one Synanon, which became quite notorious. But say a little more about that transition that happens in the 60s, in the last 10 years of the life of the narcotic farm. Yeah, so the food at Lexington, like the music, was legendary. So people actually liked the food. It was good food, and it was grown there. It was fresh. Um, it was not like other institutional food. And this was kind of well, well-known, well-documented. And then in the 1960s, there begins to be uh, prison reform that says you can't make people work. And so you can't make people work in the same way, which means you can't really run an agricultural enterprise because the agricultural enterprise, although it was headed by um, a staff member 
it was really entirely patient inmate labor. This was also true in the kitchen. And so what happens is there begin to be shifts in the 1960s, partly as a result of that changing pattern of race and ethnicity that began in the 1950s. And there's also federal prison reform that changes things. In addition, there's a shift away from psychotherapy, individual or group, uh, that had been in its heyday in the 50s towards these more affordable kind of Alcoholics Anonymous style, Narcotics Anonymous style, and countergroups and things like that, that make more sense with a large population than individual psychotherapy. That's pretty difficult to achieve. And nobody really embraced it um, in the patient inmate population, because most people, as you said, weren't going there to get off drugs. They were going there to reduce the cost of their habit. There were also, I would say, hardening attitudes among the staff, um, partly because the idealism of the early days didn't outlast the post-war wave. That idealism, people begin to see, right, that people are coming back, that it's kind of a revolving door. And everyone who's kind of in charge begins to realize that we are not having the impact or effect that we wish we would had. And actually, even from the 1940s, there were concerns about aftercare. The people who ran the narcotic farm believed that there should be aftercare, that there should be follow-up, that people shouldn't just like leave the institution and just go back to their neighborhoods. There began to be, in fact, a scientific um, investigation of relapse. What was it? And why was it that people could be on the train or the bus back to their neighborhoods where they had used and they would feel like they were going into withdrawal again, even if they'd been clean for months? And so what was that phenomenon? They begin to kind of get really curious about that. Now, the therapeutic communities are um, actually many of them started by people who were at the narcotic farm and then left the narcotic farm, were critical of the model of abstinence only. And they basically said, this needs to be a much more confrontational version of abstinence only. So therapeutic communities or TCs, uh, Synanon being the largest and most uh, notorious in Daytop Village following on, were much more, uh, you know, their therapies were things like the hot seat, where you had to sit there and just take or, or dunce caps. So they really used humiliation and what I would call coercion uh, to get people to stop using drugs. And they used the power of a community, a larger group of people, to try to keep people, you know, they, they would have them do very menial work, unpaid, you know, toothbrushing the grout in the showers or on the stairways. Very humiliating things were, were done in the, that movement. And that was even tried. The administrators at Lexington gave over a building where the women used to be housed. Uh, they were now housed in the main part of the facility in a separate wing. They gave over a building to a therapeutic community called Matrix House to see, right, if they could perhaps um, be more successful in terms of more effective at treatment um, if they used these more confrontational techniques. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Purely by coincidence, this past weekend, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Howard Josepher, uh, at his uh, summer home on Fire Island uh, in New York. And Howard is somebody who was one of the uh, founders of Phoenix House, and then he started a remarkable harm reduction program in New York called Exponents. But he, back in the 60s, landed up at Lexington. And I asked him, what did he remember about being at Lexington in the mid-60s? And what he remembered was those confrontational, therapeutic sorts of programs. You know, he was among the number of people for whom that, who sort of was drawn to that model, at least initially, about challenging people. But his one recollection was that confrontational, you know, therapeutic programs at at Lexington at that time. It's such an interesting paradox, isn't it? So one of the things about the narcotic farm is that they would give wings to therapeutic communities, often configured around uh, racial or ethnic identity, and they would allow them to choose their name Newman House or Unity, spelled with a Y-O-U, and uh, both men and women uh, could try to do this kind of thing uh, within the institution in the 1960s and 70s. Actually, in the late 1960s, there were really big changes in the federal prison system. There were big changes in 1966 that affected the institution in ways that allowed for more of this sort of thing. In 1966, Mm -hmm. 
the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act was passed. And NARA, it was called, the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act, was a federal act that uh, essentially changed the way treatment was done. So if you think about what is a treatment infrastructure, well, for from 1935 until 1966, it's these two massive narcotic farms. It's centralized, it's federal, it's uh, one east of the Mississippi and one west of the Mississippi River. And after 1966, that legislation essentially says you have to get treatment in your home community. So every state, every town, every city is supposed to have drug treatment. Well, how are you going to do that, right? Maybe, okay, so you have federal contractors um, who set out to make sure that everywhere that a person who is a drug user comes from has drug treatment. And so treatment essentially devolves to the states away from the federal. They use the narcotic farm essentially to, uh, you go there for six months only, and then you are discharged to your home community. And so that's why they're experimenting with these other kinds of forms of treatment, because who is going to provide all that treatment? Well, who comes forward is the Salvation Army, these new therapeutic communities, right? Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, and they are provided federal money to start up treatment in Philadelphia or in, um, you know, small towns in, say, Pennsylvania, right? So you have a decentralization of the whole treatment infrastructure to the states and then to the cities where people who are having drug problems are coming from. So that changes mm -hmm. everything at the narcotic farm. Now, there's also something else emerging at that time, right? Which is that when people were initially admitted to Lexington or Fort Worth, right, one of the first things that would happen is they would be detoxed from their morphine or heroin addiction, typically with, I think, you know, declining doses of morphine until they just stopped. And then after methadone, 1948, actually. you know, well, actually, I thought it was morphine until 1948 and then right. methadone after 1948. But what happens in the 60s is Vincent Dole and Marie Nicewander in their research suggesting that methadone should be used not just for detox, but for maintenance purposes. So you have sort of simultaneous with the growth of the uh, therapeutic community model, also the beginnings of methadone maintenance programs beginning to open up in communities around the country. Yeah, and methadone maintenance is, uh, like old, the old morphine maintenance, pretty contested. And it's very much contested by the... Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency Administration. So you have methadone maintenance is a pilot program. It's experimental well into the 70s, um, and it is contained within a methadone clinic system. It's not generalized to medicine more generally. Mm -hmm. And so methadone maintenance is it does become available in some of these destination cities, Detroit, New York, certainly. Uh, so you see a rapid scaling up of availability of methadone in certain places and complete non-availability in other places. The narcotic farm is interesting in terms of they were anti-maintenance in certain ways because they felt that 
Um, you could overdose on methadone. Methadone was very little different in their minds uh, from morphine or even heroin. And so they had fights actually uh, with Vincent Dole and Marie Nicewander. Nicewander herself had been at the narcotic farm. They had one of the first psychiatric residency programs in the country at the narcotic farm. And so she had been there and she had observed and she did not feel very uh, positive about the program at Lexington. Vincent Dole had a very different theory of addiction. He had a theory um, that addiction was a metabolic disease. And that was in some ways a very different kind of theory than a theory of a neurochemical kind of uh, disease that the people at the narcotic farm were functioning with. Between the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act and methadone maintenance, it is very clear in the early 70s that the narcotic farms are becoming what we might call white elephants, right? They are out of step with the times. They are carceral environments. And it's evolving uh, towards something really different as a result of, of the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act, because the states are beginning to come on and say, all right, let's see what works and let's start up treatment in our states and in our cities and in our towns that makes sense for the people who come from this area. But let's turn now to the Addiction Research Center, what became known as Addiction Research Center. I mean, my understanding was you had leading researchers and scientists. They had a ready-made population of drug addicts who were right there. And that for decades, they conducted thousands of studies, published over 500 articles in leading scientific journals, you know, really had all sorts of sort of breakthroughs in understanding addiction. So just tell us more about that Addiction Research Center and what was so special about it and what it really added to our broader knowledge historically about drug use and drug addiction. Sure. Um, the Addiction Research Center is the name that was given to the laboratory that Congress mandated um, be in uh, the U.S. narcotic farm. You know, back when the farm b begins, um, when it opens in 1935, U.S. Congress has great faith that science is going to be able to find a cure for drug addiction. And they really believe that. Uh, 1929, they really believe that. They mandate that there be a scientific effort. And that effort um, is going to begin actually before the narcotic farm opens. The person who's going to become the director of that laboratory-based effort, Clifton Himmelsbach, is doing research at Fort Leavenworth, which is the largest prison in the country at that time. And he's doing research on that population of uh, people who are drug users who find themselves in federal prison. And he's also doing research at cancer hospitals. And he's trying to figure out what is drug addiction scientifically? What is it? Um, how does it work? Um, why does it happen with opioids and nothing else? Right. Why do these? And he draws out these um, charts and he finds out that this is a very predictable situation. Right. You have a very predictable lead up to tolerance. And then you have if you withdraw, then a, a subject will go into withdrawal and there will be a very predictable pattern of symptoms and of physiological responses to that withdrawal. And so he invents this thing called the morphine abstinence syndrome. You know, what happens when somebody is addicted and you take away that substance, what do they do? And um, he begins to study it in very small 
groups of people. Six is the usual size from 1935 uh, well into the post-war period. You have very small subject populations. And he believes subjects should know what they're getting into, that they should sign consent forms, and that um, they should understand you know, what's going on. And so he, he says you can only do these studies on people who are seasoned morphine or heroin users who uh, do not want to be cured, right? So these are people who say that they um, are never going to stop using, that they will use, um, you know, as soon as they get out of the institution. Uh, no one who hopes for a cure is supposed to be accepted into these studies. So the laboratory is a pretty interesting place because at that time, you have to imagine, we know nothing scientifically about this condition and we don't even know really what kind of a condition it is. We have to define it. We have to chart it out, etc. And in addition to that, our subjects know more about the condition than the researchers do. They don't know anything about this condition. Who knows? Drug users know, and they are the experts in this um, area. And so they talk to them. They have a specific ward set aside that's called the research ward. And uh, they stay in that ward during the time that they are participating in these studies. They are never allowed back in the general population when they are participating in these studies. So from 1935 to 1962, there is no requirement in the U.S. for clinical trials prior to a drug going onto the market. But the pharmaceutical companies who are putting these drugs on the market do want human testing. They do want to know if their drugs work, if they're dangerous, etc. And so what they do is they evolve a system. This laboratory at the narcotic farm works very closely with the Committee of the National Academies of Science and the National Research Council, because during that, the war, there was a lot of interest in, was it possible to do something with the morphine molecule, to dissect it, to get rid of the addictive potential, and to heighten the pain-killing effect and the beneficial effects of morphine, and get rid of all of the bad effects, the, the, the addictive effects. Uh, this turns out to be a quest that we are still engaged in. It is a tough nut to crack scientifically, but that laboratory was always in conversation with other laboratories that were doing this at the chemical bench and in uh, animal pharmacology at the University of Michigan. So you have essentially Lexington, that laboratory, becomes a node in a network of three laboratories that are looking at the molecular level, the animal uh, pharmacology, and the human or clinical pharmacology. So the laboratory at Lexington is called the Addiction Research Center after 1948. When it is joined, it becomes one of two working laboratories of the National Institute of Mental Health. So NIMH comes into being in 1948, and that laboratory, along with one in Washington, D.C., is uh, joined together. The idea still being uh, find a cure, but if you can't find a cure, then now we have a new goal, find a way to change the morphine molecule so that it won't be addictive. 
And then meanwhile, all these other drugs are being produced by the pharmaceutical company, and all those ones need to be tested for their potential for addiction and other risks, right? So you basically have a population at Lexington of people, both inmates, both those who are incarcerated as well as those who are volunteers, who are basically volunteering for these programs to say, test these drugs on me and uh, use me as a guinea pig. Um, And by the way, and in return, what did they get uh, in return for participating in these studies? Well, so the question of uh, compensation was always a big one at Lexington. And that's partly because when you take a prisoner out of a prison population, think about this is a big prison, 1,500 people. Uh, It's loud. You never have any time to yourself. You don't have any privacy, any private room. And so that's what they got. The compensation was essentially to move out of the general population and into a much quieter, much, you know. In addition, they had 1935 to uh, late 40s, they could designate compensation in terms of their drug of choice. So they could save up uh, morphine or heroin um, because uh, the the other thing that I haven't explained is that um, the drugs that are being used in the laboratory are essentially cleaned up drugs that are confiscated by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and they are cycled back into research at Lexington after they have been um, cleaned up. And so uh, there is heroin there and there is morphine and they can save that up. And if they want to, they can uh, wait um, until they uh, want to use that drug. So it's called the drug bank. And we would view it today as a highly unethical practice. uh, But at the time, they weren't allowed to pay research subjects at all. They couldn't pay any money. Um, And so they thought about, well, what can we use to compensate people for uh, their time and their trouble and their, uh, you know, kind of giving giving their bodies to science? Um, and so they came up with that answer. If you step back and you say, here are people volunteering for these studies and they can be given in, you know, later in later years money or maybe a reduction in sentence, or they could be given access to the drugs they would like for a while. And you're dealing with a, a population of people who say they never want to quit using drugs. It does raise the bigger question, like why really on some bigger level, is that unethical? Why would it? I mean, obviously, we can see how everybody got caught up and see, oh, what do you mean you're giving these people drugs? You know, that that's unethical, blah, 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 blah. You're sustaining their addiction. But these are people who went into being research subjects saying, I never want to quit. I mean, so what do you think? Was it really unethical to pay these folks in drugs? Yeah. So um, I'm going to get myself in trouble by saying this. But uh, to tell you the truth, the scale of human experimentation with currently illegal drugs today is huge, enormous, much bigger than the scale and the levels of control um, that were in place at the narcotic farm. And in fact, in the book, uh, Discovering Addiction, I try really hard to differentiate between the ethics of these studies. I try really hard to look at those kinds of questions, um, in part because I don't have the same response that many people do. I don't say that that was um, 
unethical in the ways that other people might say that it is. The fact is the narcotic farm was a very small research enterprise um, and the larger pharmaceutical companies who were innovating the 1950s, we were awash in new pharmaceuticals and they needed to be understood. Do they have addictive potential or addiction liability as they would call it um, or not? And so what they were, the places where these kinds of tests were being done at to scale were actually state penitentiaries where pharmaceutical companies were building clinical research facilities on the grounds of like Jackson State in Michigan, uh, mm -hmm. Upjohn, Park Davis, right, ultimately becomes Pfizer, right? All, all of these pharmaceutical companies are building clinical research facilities because after 1962, you have to go through phase one, two, and three trials. And phase one was all done on prisoners. Um, almost 95% of phase one trials in the 1960s were done on prisoners. Uh, mm -hmm. There was nothing like the effort that we have today, you know, for phase one trials. And one arguably can say that we're proceeding in an un unethical way today because today we ask people to volunteer uh, for phase one trials. And um, they're largely people of color. They're largely poor people. You know, it's uh, a very different mm -hmm. world. Um, and you can say that they are freer. Uh, but are they? Uh, right. That's a real question. And I have to say, uh, so much we, that we know in humans was generated initially at the narcotic farm. It was known basically all over the world. The World Health Organization turned to the laboratory, the Addiction Research Center, um, prior to our having the Controlled Substances Act and the scheduling uh, that we have today. The laboratory at Lexington rendered decisions for whole narcotic control apparatus, the global narcotic control apparatus, uh, paid attention to the science at Lexington because it was the only place where it was really set up to be done. And that's partly because, yes, they have a captive population, but it's also a population that has knowledge, uh, has mm -hmm. expertise, right, can be uh, tapped to understand the effects that these drugs have on people, not animals, mm -hmm. right? Not in petri dishes or something, right? But here you have people who can actually talk to you and who have a lingo, who have a way of describing their experiences, um, uh, characterizing their experiences very accurately and precisely. Now, in the 1970s, there begins to be um, a real, uh, what I would call a knowledge explosion late 60s, early 70s, knowledge explosion. And uh, the Addiction Research Center is no longer the only game in town. And so there begin to be uh, competing paradigms. There begins to be inquiry um, elsewhere. And that's really important. But one of the things about Lexington is that the science changed over time. So in the beginning, you don't have neuropsychopharmacology right? You don't have neuropharmacology until the 50s. And when they begin to hire people to study the brain, um, and they hire a neuropharmacologist um, in the 60s, who comes in, and who begins to really look at um, what's going on in the brain, and from clinical description is able to characterize uh, the opiate receptor, uh, right, that there are more than one, 
that there are multiple opioid receptors and uh, shows essentially where they are and what they're doing in the brain. And so this early identification of opiate receptors in the brain in the 1960s at the Addiction Research Center is really important for our studies today. But there's one other big piece of the research that was going on, which was the research on psychedelics and giving some of these inmates LSD and mescaline and psilocybin, um, you know, not unlike what Leary and Alpert were doing in their early days at Harvard. And a lot of this research back in the 50s being funded, you know, quietly by the CIA. It was not publicly revealed at that time. But there were some very serious studies, I mean, beneficial studies that are still regarded, you know, as legitimate scientific studies that came out of those narcotic farm studies of giving uh, the inmates uh, some psychedelic. Just say more about that psychedelic thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. So in the 1950s, uh, I don't know, there were something like 80 laboratories studying LSD. LSD was a tremendously well-studied drug. And um, the people at the narcotic farm were pretty sure that LSD, mescaline, there was a lot of interest in those drugs uh, because they worked completely differently. They had a different effect on the brain. They worked through different neural pathways. And that was known at the Addiction Research Center. And so they were interested in that because they realized these didn't have the same tolerance um, and withdrawal effects that they were used to seeing with morphine. And so if you are studying LSD um, in the 50s, you are typically funded by the CIA. The CIA comes knocking at your door. The Addiction Research Center suddenly became very um, well-equipped uh, as a result of these LSD studies. And they um, benefited uh, for about 10 years from the funding of the CIA. And in particular, that um, favorite um, program, uh, the MKUltra program. Uh, and so that, of course, got them into considerable trouble later in the 1970s when Congress started to look at what had been done in the 50s. Because in the 1970s, by the time the Congress, uh, Teddy Kennedy and so forth, begin to uh, investigate human research on federal prisoners, the narcotic farm is the only place where there are still federal prisoners who are participating in drug studies. State prisons, mm -hmm. yes, but federal, no. And so uh, one of the things that the ARC had trouble with in the 60s was that change that I talked about earlier in 1966, the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act. It meant that no one was at Lexington for more than six months. And um, it was a requirement at the Addiction Research Center that to be in a study, you had to be drug-free for six months before release. So they could not use people who went there under the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act. And oh, so what they I did, did not, I see, yeah. I did not realize that really as a book, because I mean, I, a lot of the people who had been in the studies were people who had been sentenced to very long prison sentences. And that was mm -hmm. almost, I think, one of the requirements of admitting somebody in. So after, in, by the mid 60s, after the Narcotic Addict Rehabilitation Act, it means that nobody going to Lexington is staying there for more than six months. Right. So, I mean, is your sense, I mean, obviously you co-authored a book on the narcotic farm and a, another book grew out of a lot of the research that happened there. Would you say in retrospect, it was a, a net plus in terms of the American history of dealing with drugs? 
I always sit with the paradox that there will never be another narcotic farm. I don't think that there's a, a reason to return to a narcotic farm model. But um, I, I also think that we learned something in terms of this was a, a low coercion kind of um, institution. People who went there learned in some cases for the first time that they were human beings. Uh, there was a, a, a largely humane and compassionate ethos to the place, and they were respected, and uh, some of them got well, and some of them didn't come back. And mm -hmm. actually, I look at the rates of relapse and recidivism at the narcotic farm, and I have to say they're just not that different from what we see in a lot of treatment programs, most treatment programs today. Yeah. I mean, the simple fact that a third of the inmates were people who went there voluntarily, which cannot be said of any other prison I've ever heard about in history, is a sort of remarkable uh, fact as well. So, Nancy, I want to thank you uh, very, very much for having this conversation with me. I mean, I just loved reading The Narcotic Farm. There's also a documentary uh, based on the book that people can find, I think, on YouTube. I think you can find it on Vimeo, actually. And thank you, Ethan, for all the work that you have done to bring this uh, kind of perspective to the American people. Well, thank you very much. Okay, take care. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll be talking about the country with perhaps the most fascinating drug policy in the world. That's the Islamic Republic of Iran, which has also been a huge supporter of harm reduction policies. My guest will be Maziar Giabi, a professor at the University of Exeter in the UK. I just kind of recall a statement by the late Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, the, the leader of the revolution and the supreme leader of Iran in the 80s, that he said that we have to fight the war on two fronts. The first front, the war against Iraq. But the second front was the war against drug and addiction. So this is just to give you a sense of how entrenched it was with the political history of revolutionary Iran. It made me understand that it really needed to be discussed with all due attention. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.